We're in conversation with Ofensa Fulani Mukwena, transport economist, lecturer, blogger, columnist and researcher at Pukka Northwest University. He is, one of, he is of the view that a continental approach could shield for the continent's workforce from future threats and make them more resilient if their work if the work they did rather was dignified and meaningful. He further goes on to say that an integrated continent means Africa could compete with the US, EU, China and India in building big business and transport networks alongside global trade lines. Offensa is also of the view a visa-free Africa is justified and improves the cross-pollination of business and eases the potential for Africa-wide tourism by Africans within the continent. Further, it enables the labor mobility needs of the African continental free trade and the single African air transport market. I know Mr. Maimane has views of his own on this, but perhaps what we should do just to canvas the conversation properly and to predicate it on the issues that are foremost, let's give offense an opportunity to just speak and speak freely in relation to what he believes the next 15 minutes of this conversation really should be about. Offensa, welcome to SAFM. Hey, thank you for the invitation and uh, good evening to your listeners. Mm, your thoughts? Um, well, you know, the, the premise of the, the article sort of outlines some of the key issues that need to be aligned. So when we forecast when the World Bank published their forecast for the African Continental Free Trade Agreement and its imp- and its impact, one of the main assumptions that they basically made was that all the policy alignment prerequisites would be there, and it would be through those alignments that you pro- that you'd see the kind of returns that are being estimated for the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. But what we know, however, is that one of the key issues relates well. Two of the main issues relate to number one, one port, one stop border posts, and number two, basically looking beyond the South African narrative in terms of aligning what we're doing as a country with our continent, but at the same time enabling the institutional infrastructure to not lag behind the infrastructure and industrial requirements or developments that take place. So that's I mean, really also- where, where that is. Offensive, good evening. It's Musi here. Um, Africa, I mean, I, it's a continent, uh, like all of us, I'm very passionate about, very passionate about what happens in this continent. And I love what you're saying about the regulatory framework within which we must operate to ensure that the free trade agreement is given effect, whether it's visas, etc. But what do you respond to this particular question, which says, why is it that if I want to get goods to... Baitbridge, it takes me much longer than if I was to try and get them elsewhere. Why? Why? How do we ensure that Africa, at least, has sensible infrastructure that the road from here to anywhere else works in such a way that we can move goods quicker? I know you're a transport economist, so I thought it might be helpful to have that conversation because if we are going to trade better with African content, our counterparts, it would be good for us to be able to move goods quicker. Surely. Yes, absolutely. Um, but but there, there are two parallel issues that are there. So the one issue has to do with the the nature of the bilateral agreements that exist. And in fact, some of the trade blocks that exist 
as well. Um, and the conversations that are happening with regard to enabling the free flow of consignments. Our challenge, especially here in, in SADC, one of our biggest challenges uh, relate to the cost of moving consignments across our borders. Um, but it's, it's not just processing costs, but it's also temporal costs, so time costs that ripple up into the supply chain. So to answer you more directly, there are two main things that basically need to happen. Mutual recognition of consignments. So what you do is basically pre-recognize, pre-approve, and get the consignments through the borders. And then secondly, actually improving the border systems themselves. And in many ways, there are projects in the pipeline for this one-stop border post conversation and the um, border management agencies. But underlying all of this, what we need to move towards is a much stronger approach to digitizing and being aligned with the International Road Association's approach to enabling consignments to move at the scale of the Eurostar as well. Now, let me ask you a more uh, I suppose a more difficult and tricky question because I can ex- expect the balancing question of it is often we talk about African problems, African solutions, right? Yes. And at times you talk about the same consignment of goods. The African worker is competing for a job with a Chinese worker because the goods that are going to arrive at China are going to arrive cheaper and sometimes we're going to have to have this conversation about whether should should Africa be protecting its own industries should should we be quick to be exporting goods elsewhere with the hope that when they come back to us as processed goods how, how do we balance that out because Africa is part of the global continent but it does feel as though at times we want to have this conversation and with the behind the mantra African problems, African solutions, and almost isolationist in our approach. Yeah, you know, it's so. The, so, what your your question, in my view, comes from a, a nexus of history, politics, economics. It's really um, tied to that. But in the present tense, we are part of a global value chain, and the big question really is. What role are we playing in the global value chain? We're accounting for a substantially small share of the global, the global trade, number one. Number two, interregional trade is fundamentally limited, which means that we're producing for exports and we're, and we're importing fundamentally. And we're not moving as much consignments as what we could within our continent. But the reason why that's happening, at least one of the reasons why that's happening, is number one, because we have border inefficiencies. Number two, the capacity for basically aligning industries or industrial development at a continental scale is limited. And that's one of the things that I talk about in the article, that size really matters. And if, if, we, if, we, if, we, can, <laughs> if we can build a conversation around prioritizing the diversification of industry throughout the continent, because the African Continental Free Trade Agreement is actually driven or premised on the growth in manufacturing outputs. And where and what will we, will we be manufacturing? When, when, when are we going to enable the shift in the Zambian market from copper to agriculture as per what, what recently uh, came out of the African Development Bank? When are we moving you know, Nigeria's economy from oil 
to a diversified platform similar to, to what we're seeing in, in the Emirates. So those are the kind of conversations that we should be having at a continental level, but of course within countries. But the big challenge is reciprocation. So you don't want SA to dominate the conversation and say, we will dump in inverted commas. What's necessary is that there's a reciprocal relationship from an institutional perspective, from a talent perspective, and again, finally, from a production and investment perspective. So, so I mean, whilst I think this is a very important conversation, I, 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 and, I, and I certainly endorse what you're saying, I have to ask you the more cynical question, which is, mm. here we sit... Um, the president announces last night that vaccines are going to be procured through the through Africa continental wide agreement. Yet, not a single one has landed in South Africa, and we only anticipate in a few months' time. Here's uh, you get an election in Uganda gets gets problematic, at least interesting from where it's at. You look at elections in Malawi. So you look at institutions and democracy. You look at Africa's pr- procurement processes. And then you have to sit down and say, but the African Union has not worked. How on earth are we hoping that this particular trade agreement, whilst it's, it deals with issues of tariffs, it deals with issues of regulation, are we suddenly going to arrive at a place where we can coordinate better if we can't get a vaccine on the continent at the pace that we need it? Yeah, that is a, that's a very good question. I, I don't have a complete answer for it, but... Um, what what I can say, at least in my competence, is that the the Trilateral Commission published an interesting report a long time ago titled "The Crisis of Democracy." One of the main arguments in in that particular report were were actually um, again reverberated by um, by by uh, this, this, this one interesting book that came out recently. I'll just remember it. Um, and and the, the key here is that. What's happening is we're seeing a proliferation of a very diverse scope of politics. And that translates in a sense of urgency for implementation, urgency for action, and a deep dependence on judicial regulation, in inverted commas. So how does this relate to the distribution of vaccines? The pressure that's going to mount on a continental level is, is twofold. The one is, when will we be in a position where we are manufacturing vaccines domestically, given the fact that much of this will probably continue for a protracted period of time. Look at the National Geographic. One of their forecasts was that we're only going to see vaccines into the general population by 2023. Um, Number two, the, the other dimension is if we do get to manufacture domestically, how do we distribute it? If we don't get to do to manufacture domestically, how do we distribute it? The distribution question is a constant. And, you know, it's outside of, of my current competencies. I'll have to talk to some of my colleagues who are doing, you know, who are working sure. in the medicament space. But even that distribution question is secondary to what Mr. Maimani, for the most part, was addressing in the three questions that he asked. The strength of any initiative on the continent has got to be predicated on the institutions built for the purpose of implementing some of these programs to be working, one, to be seen 
to be working too. And I would even argue that the second one is more important than the first one because the second one lends itself to the kinds of confidence, therefore come investments into these institutions. And for the most part, we do not see that. We do not see that in a host country. We do not see it in the regions. We do not see it, therefore, on the continent. For instance, we're talking about the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. Its precursor was the the tripartite free trade agreement. Mm. If that was even completed, it was for the most part impotent. It hadn't done anything. So why is it that every single time there's a challenge on the continent, a new institution has to be built instead of making sure that those institutions on the ground are sufficiently capacitated and that work of that institution or the work of those institutions gets the momentum before we keep building. In many respects, we are building at the same time we are just deconstructing on current approaches. Thoughts? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Does Mr. Mawani want to add to that? Sure, I'm sure he does. No, I mean, I think um, one of the, the the greatest challenges that I think we need to face is, is how do we... I mean, it's inherent within the business community to to not have a, a subconscious sense of xenophobic attitude towards other African countries, but rather to think of ourselves even uh, even if I think about the cohort like the Asian Tigers, you set up something like ASEAN, which effectively for Africa's purposes we need to be able to say how do we establish venture capital? How do we ensure that there's easier trade? But I don't necessarily necessarily uh, inherently, whilst I think the continent can think as a whole, I think the diversity between ECOWAS, SADC, and some of the other regions might require that you deal in those three blocks. But certainly the opportunities are immense if you're going to build a venture capital fund in that sense and begin to ask ourselves, how do we maximize the growing population that we've got here? In May I engage that? May I engage that? I mean, post-World War Two and the construction of the Bretton Woods institutions, the world order could not be more conflicted, could not be more destroyed. And yet, across the Atlantic, North America and Europe as a bloc were able to establish, among others, the World Bank and the IMF. And they've stuck largely to those agreements. An American will always be at the World Bank. A European will always be at the IMF. This despite the Atlantic itself being the basis of World War II when Hitler wanted to have that head and folk policy, pitting France, the UK and Germany against itself, co-opting even Russia and America in the fight. But they were able, despite those differences, which cannot be neglected, so to speak, Mr. Maimani, were strong. Africa is one continent, largely in one time zone, maybe two or three. Whilst we are diverse, there is a common thread that makes us African and uniquely African. Sure. At what point could we then lament all of these things that, if we really do believe them, could keep us apart and disintegrated? At what point then do we own our narrative and future and commit ourselves to something, one thing, and make it work for all of Africa? Mm. I, th- I think I think what is undeniable, um, and if I I'll, I'll be very quick on this issue. Whilst, whilst I raise the respective regions, I certainly do believe we have to build an Africa-wide solutions. And, and in many ways, it takes leadership. You know, having engaged leaders who set up NEPAD 
as an example. Mm. That was an important initiative that we needed to deal with. APRM as well. That, yeah, yeah. yeah, the African peer review mechanisms. But mm. also, I, to me, my greatest lament is the fact that I think an institution like the African Union has failed fundamentally mm. because it holds no consequences to countries who refuse to play by the rules. So at the same time as all of that, you can recall, if you look at the, even just the EU in and of itself as a concept, countries like um, Portugal, like Greece, mm. when push came to shove, you're able to use economic terms to be able to hold them accountable. And I think if you come back to Africa, it certainly cannot be that we protect liberation movements when, it, when in other instances mm. we need to ensure that economic pressure is applied, that we yeah. build truly a prosperous our continent, and we've got to be able to apply both carrot and the stick if we need to do that. And I sometimes think the African Union is toothless at times, and I certainly think certain institutions in Africa have failed in this particular regard. Final comments view, from you, offense. My, eh? Final comments my from view you is, is, is that we, we, in many ways, although this is very difficult, um, the balance between how we deal with our politics and our economics really, really need, need, needs a, a radical shift at a continental level, yeah, country, country, um, country by country, but uh, from an economic perspective, that's one of the things that we're struggling with. We've got um, significant infrastructure programs. We have, we've built corridor development and corridor management entities, but they don't fail because we don't have the competencies. They tend to fail largely because of institutional failures. And, you know, and, and, and this is one of the, one of the things that, that in my view, are a critical hindrance for the efficiency opportunities that we have, especially for developing our continent, because development can only be, be distributed. Um, and currently, we're still relying on growth. The conversation is premised on growth, 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 and that growth is far from being distributed. Hence, we see the kind of inequalities that we have. We see the kind of political discourse that we have. And then we see the limited appetite to invest at the scale that we need the investment. You look at what happened with the Brenton Woods Institution. They admitted, or at least the economists who were there, you know, crafting the structural reforms, did admit that the trickle-down you know, framework just didn't work. It wasn't suitable for the African continent. And that error or moral hazard, perhaps, you know, is not something that we can reverse. It's something that we're actually stuck in and we have to work our way out of. And one of the key ways to do this, in my view, have been, number one, special economic zoning with the right kind of incentives. Number two, aligning the infrastructure to that. And number three, you have to charge into sure. a global value chain. So those are my, my thoughts around this. Well, offensively, you've given us a lot to think about, but the interesting aspect of it all, we've talked about any and everything, but the visa-free Africa itself. That in yes. itself yes. is an indictment in terms of the massive amount of work that ought to happen first before we yes. can genuinely have a conversation as to the feasibility of, indeed, a visa-free Africa. But for your thoughts and time, ours is to say many thank you. Thank you. Mr. Mugwen, a transport economist, lecturer, blogger, columnist and researcher at Northwest University. Here's out.